we're in the, the 12th chapter of the book of Mark. Now, I don't know if you look at things like this, but we're nearing the end of the Gospel of Mark. There are 16 chapters in the book, so we're nearing the end, and I have been giving some thought and prayer to what we're going to do next, and here's my idea. And it's what I'm going to give you the illusion of participating in my decision. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. This is what I'd really like to do. I'd like to do a study of Genesis 12 through 50. We studied 1 through 11 oh, a number of years ago, I think. Yes. But this would be a character study. This is how I will teach it a character study of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph. Joseph receives the longest treatment in the book of Genesis. Uh, that's really amazing how much he really, and the second would be Jacob. Jacob is very close to that. Uh, so that's what I'd like to do. The notes, the note packet, which I just was working on this week, is about 27 pages long. So I hope that's all right. Yeah. So um, actually, even if it isn't all right, that's what we're going to study. Uh, that's kind of what we'll be focused on. I think we haven't been in the Old Testament for quite a while, so I thought that would be a good place to go uh, go to. In uh, Mark chapter 12, verse 35 is where I want, or excuse me, verse 28 is where I want to pick up. We started that last week. I just sort of got into it, but didn't really spend much time on it. Remind you of where we are. Uh, this is Passion Week, uh, Holy Week in the life of Jesus, so to speak. Um, Palm Sunday has occurred. Uh, a number of things that are part of what you perhaps know occurred during Holy Week have occurred. What Mark is focusing on is the same thing Matthew focuses on in his gospel, the growing hostility between Jesus and the, the leadership, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, all these different people we've, we've been meeting. And then <clears throat> Mark. Mark culminates this uh, heated uh, rejection of Jesus, uh, heated <laughs> debates with Jesus, with, first of all, a scribe who's very serious about his faith. And then, finally, in verse 35, where Jesus is one of the rare times he does this, Jesus goes on the offensive. And so th he's going to conclude all this then with the Lord Jesus uh, warning, uh, in effect, his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, which is how we'll conclude this. So, one of the scribes came up to him. Now, I want to remind you, the scribes are, uh, they're all Pharisees, but their, their job, their role was to teach the law to the people, and they often copied the scriptures. And they came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked. So this man, this scribe, he's unnamed, had been witnessing and listening to these debates that we studied the last two weeks. And he asks, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, I mentioned this last week. <clears throat> the scribes and the Pharisees taught 613 individual commandments in the law. Now, they took very legitimate, most of it is very legitimate, but they're making it into a performance-based walk with the Lord. I, I don't know if that makes sense to, to say it that way. That's a, a 21st century way of saying it. But it's kind of a, it's, it was like a regimen that would be un, unbelievably overbearing for people. 
You mean my relationship with God is dependent on my obedience to these 613 commandments? Your answer would be yes. That's not your answer. Is it? No. <laughs> and that's not your answer. So Jesus is being drawn into a debate, which he will not get engaged in. But he's, he's drawing him into a debate, which was kind of a really big debate among these right? These guys, these scribes and Pharisees. And of all these, which is the most important? Which is kind of an important issue. You, you kind of want it. Okay. If I can't keep all 613 of them, which one's the most important one? I'm not sure that's how they're framing it. But they're wanting to prioritize them. And so... And Jesus just will not be drawn into this. So what he does, Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's not a commandment. That's not in the imperative mood. That's in the indicative mood. It's a declaration. It's a statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. <laughs> and so he, he, that's the most important. So what's he saying there? The most important thing for you is to understand who God is. And, of course, this is what the, it's because of the Hebrew word that starts it. This is called the Shema. This is the statement, the, the theological statement of, of Jews. This is what they believe. It's in Deuteronomy 6.4. Let's take that apart. Hero Israel. That is the title that's given to the followers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Genesis 32. After Jacob wrestles with the Lord, and the Lord breaks him of his, his manipulative, uh, controlling, self, self-aggrandizing, self-indulgent, selfish lifestyle, he says, I'm going to change your name from Jacob, Yaakov, to Israel. Israel means those who struggle with God. And that's an appropriate name, isn't it? Because the rest, of, the rest of the history of these dear people is their struggle with God. And so I just remember, that is a covenant name for the people. Here it is, the Lord, our God. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, translate that as if this were in Hebrew. Yahweh is our Elohim. So Yahweh, and, and, and to bring it into English, it's Lord, but Yahweh is the self-sufficient, self-existent great I am of the universe. He is our God. And so Yahweh, Lord, is the, the, the title used of God in Genesis 2 as he's creating the institutions of marriage, the institutions of our civilization. It's the most important covenant name of God. He is our God, our Elohim. Elohim is the name for God used in Genesis 1. He's the creator. He is the he is the the originator and deliverer of all things for the human race, whom who he made his image bearer. He's our God, and he's one. Now, that's interesting. It's one. It's interesting that that's in Deuteronomy 6, 4, but it's interesting Jesus brings that up. I should say adds it, because you have just said the Lord, the Lord, our hero is, the Lord is our God, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. And that Hebrew word for one is it's a really fascinating term because it's a term that is used of a cluster of things, like a cluster of grapes is one. A cluster, uh, oranges don't cluster, what else clusters? <laughs> uh, 
know, like a fruit. What else? Anything else? Clusters? I can't think of anything else other than grapes. But you know what I mean? And you cut, there's that, that grape. That's one. It's a cluster of grapes hanging on a on a vine. Okay. So you think about that for a minute. What does that allow for? Diversity. You're not following me. Diversity. Yeah, diversity. And what is the term for the diversity of the Godhead? Trinity. Trinity. So that 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 Moses says this in Deuteronomy 6.4, and that Jesus is repeating it here, as the, this is the most important thing, scribe, and he quotes the Shema. So this guy st standing there, he would have known that. I mean, this is a scribe, this is a Pharisee. He would have known this, but it, it's, it's a statement. It isn't a command. As I said, this isn't the indicative mood. This is a declaration. It isn't a command. But then it, what follows is a command. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And so he he does take this declaration, this theological statement, and say this demands this demands obedience. This demands a command. This demands something that you must take as a priority. Love Yahweh Elohim with all your heart the center of your will, with all your soul, the center of your emotion, with all your mind, the center of your intellect, with all your strength, the center of your body. So if you take those four elements that the Bible uses all over the place, most of it metaphorically, but sometimes literally, what's he saying? You don't compartmentalize your love for God. You only don't only do that when you're tabernacle or in the temple later in, in Israel's history. It's a total, 24-7, complete, comprehensive love for God. You love him with your whole being. And so that, the, the Lord Jesus will repeat that several times. Well, near the end now of his public ministry, but he repeats this several times. And then you see it in, in various ways throughout the other, uh, other parts of the New Testament. Love for God is not compartmentalized to a place or to a time. Love for God is total, comprehensive. It knows no boundaries. And so that is something, if, if I can, uh, I'm careful I don't get on a long bunny trail, but that is something that most people don't really understand when they study the Old Testament. Because studying the Old Testament and when you read the Leviticus, Levitical code, and it's kind of repeated in Numbers and Deuteronomy and so on, but the whole point of that is absolutely everything you do in life, you're to think about me, God is saying. When you make your clothing, once you make it very specific, why? Because God wants me to do that. I'm thinking of him as I'm making my clothing. Every time you prepare a meal, and remember, it's arduous, it's rigorous, it's kosher, but you're holy, you're separate. Holy means separate. You're, you're, I've set you aside. Therefore, even when you're preparing your meals, you're to think of me. And when you're eating your meals, you're to think of me. And I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's just total, complete, comprehensive, 24-7, 365, love for God. And so he captures it, and when he, I mean, Moses who's writing it, inspirational spirit, and now Jesus is quoting it. Your love for me is total. Will, emotion, Mind, intellect, physical strength, physical body. It's holy. It's holistic. And even in our culture today, we have 
subsume the body, the physical body, under emotions and feelings. I feel like I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I feel like I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm using a ridiculous example. But you're subsuming the body, which God made in a very specific, unique way, to your feelings or emotions. You understand what I mean? The body isn't important. It is not important like it used to be. The body serves your emotions, your feelings, your passions, your lusts. And so that's, that is an unbiblical approach to the body. That is an unbiblical approach to the holistic way we're to put, look at ourselves. And so you can take that and extract, extrapolate that into how, how we in our civilization have now said, the body in a mother's womb is irrelevant. The body isn't important in a mother's womb. When does it become important? When it exits that womb. And some are even saying, wait a minute, that doesn't even settle it. That what life that's exited that womb would have to meet certain criterion in order for it to be defined as a person with constitutional protection. And I'm going way down a bunny trail here. But what Jesus is saying here isn't irrelevant to the 21st century. It's extremely relevant because God has created us in his image with these four parts to it. If we can put it that way. Problem with saying parts is you didn't compartmentalize it. It's all integrated together. Now, I'm going to stop. I went down a long bunny trail. I didn't plan to do that. So what the Lord is saying here is at the heart of what a Jew believed. So Jesus is saying, it isn't any one of your 613 commands. It is what you believe. And the most important thing for you to do is love your Yahweh Elohim with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he's not done. The second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19, verse 18. And it is also in other parts of the law as well. But that would have been one of the elements that would have been in there 613. But Jesus, it's really fascinating how Jesus... The second is, so the priority is your love for God. Second is your love for people. So the vertical and the horizontal, please. And you said baby in the womb is not a person. Said, right? Well, that's what the culture is saying. That's not what I said. So that means abortion is okay then? To if, our culture. If it, to the culture. Not to, to our culture. I wasn't saying, I'm saying this is what our culture is saying, that that body in the womb is irrelevant. It is not a person. It doesn't have meaning. Therefore, they can justify abortion. I would argue that that body in the womb is a person. Psalm 139, 16, uh, when I was in my mother's room, oh, Lord, you knew me. When I was an unformed substance, oh, Lord, you knew me. And, you know, the Hebrew didn't have a word for embryo, but that's the closest you can get to an embryo, an unformed substance. So I'm just saying that what is going on in our culture today, and it, it, it really it began to really raise its ugly head in the 1960s, but you, what our culture began to do was separate the body from our emotions, our feelings, and our passions. And our emotions, our feelings, and our passions determine what our body is going to do and what our body means. 
Because when we grew up, a baby was a baby, and it turned into a fetus. And to me, that's when it really went down. But in the 60s, it was no longer a baby, it was a fetus. That's right. It was no longer and viable. That, they took that term to neutralize yes. the, the assigning of value to something that you call a person. Well, automatically, you assign value to that. A fetus, oh, I don't even know what that is. I'm going to say that's a value. And I mean, it's, it's, that's the important, again, the language. It's how words are so important. I was just, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal on this, there was an article in The Economist on this. The incredible, the incredible language revolution is going on before us. Do you know, I, I just was shocked by this. Anyway, there are so many organizations and so many individuals that no longer want to use the word woman. It's now a birthing person. Yeah. A menstruating human. Yeah, that, I'm serious. I'm serious. No, I read Wall Street Journal. That you, you know, it's just like you're thinking, God, what? And so it's 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 turning the culture is turning its back on a on a a word that God uses to the to denominate the second part of the human race, man, woman, male, female. I created it this way. Genesis one twenty six twenty seven. I created it this way. And so with the civilization said, I don't care what that says. We are gonna, we are gonna assign value to whatever a person chooses to be. It does, biology and body doesn't matter. Now, I am not saying I'm saying this is what the culture is saying. You don't misunderstand that. Maybe you misunderstand what I was saying. I don't see how you can say the culture says this and the culture says that when half of us aren't with that culture. So aren't we the culture too? The dominating part of the culture is yeah. winning this argument here. That's why we have abortion. That's why I have partial. I don't I don't I would I would push back a little bit with majority. I don't think we're in a majority anymore. Okay. But it's minority, but it's we need to be stronger. But it is it, it it's where those who are making our laws and those who are making our ordinances and those, for the most part, who are adjudicating this in the various courts are buying what I was saying, the culture says. And so uh, cultural mores are impacting law. And law, or law is accommodating cultural mores. And it's, it's, a, it's an illustration, it's quite a powerful illustration of what happens when a civilization abandons what God has declared. Our civilization has abandoned what God declared. I'm talking about its laws, its ordinances, and much of the discussion, because even in corporate America, you now, uh, you have the, these ESG. Have you ever heard of that, the ESG stuff? Rob, I know you've heard of that, because his companies are involved in this. And all of that, that, that is, those ESG, Environment, social, and governmental ideas. And so you have now to accommodate all your regulations and how you do your business and how you construct your corporate culture around these ESG things. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's just, it's an amazing transformation. And even what you were talking about, which is part of the question you're asking before we sat down and got the class started, about government, about uh, our relationship to government and when do you say government needs to change or whatever it's going to be into it. All of that really relates to 
we are in as a civilization we're romans 1 18 through 34 we're in that downward spiral not us we don't think but as a civilization as an organized civilization american civilization 2021 is not what american civilization was in 1950 when i was growing up as a young boy one of the points i would make in Grove versus Wade is the technology has advanced sufficiently to identify the embryo in the body and that progression. So I think on the basis of that, the new challenge to Roe v. Wade is being heard in light of new scientific information that establishes that we have a live being earlier than Roe v. Wade knew that there was a live human being. Well, even though Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who you know, was on the Supreme Court and died here a short yeah. time ago, she said, and I, I have that, <laughs> that information in uh, the issues I did, she said Roe v. Wade was a terrible decision. It was based on faulty logic and very, very weak argumentation. And she, she said, we need to redo this. Which means I don't, it's not that I am agreeing or disagreeing, it's just what the constitutional right is there, but not the way they made the argument. Yeah. And of course, that, uh, but what is, you know, look, we really got to get off this. Gotta, our assignment <laughs> is God's word, not <laughs> the, uh, I think medical science is validating what scripture has said all along. But whether or not that will be sufficient, because don't expect people to be intellectually honest. Well, if we followed scripture all along, Roe v. Wade would not exist. Period. It's really interesting when Harry Blackman wrote, because uh, Justice Warren assigned Harry Blackman the responsibility to write the decision, which was a 7-2 decision. He consulted a whole bunch of different people, different organizations. And uh, according to the, the material I read on this, he consulted a group of theologians. And where did he go? To Yale. To Yale University's the School of Divinity. And one of the key leaders at that time was. Uh, anyway, he didn't consult the right theological advice. That's, that's, that's There's a School of Theology at Yale. At School of Divinity, that's right. Divinity, I'm sorry. Yeah. It's ironic considering. Around 1821. Uh, they almost found almost school They were founded because by that time, Harvard had declined into a school of Unitarianism. The great Puritan school of Harvard, which was the first school, center Puritan theology in 1804 became a Unitarian school. And so then Hart, Yale was founded in 1821 to counter that. And you know, I, probably you wouldn't regard Yale School of Divinity as an Orthodox center, you know, hotbed of evangelical theology, not, not really. All right, look, we're getting out of this now verse the next one. <laughs> There's no other commandment greater than these. It's both, not just the one, it's both. So Jesus is, it's just as we've seen all along in these debates and so on, Jesus is masterful here. He's setting aside all these ridiculous debates that were going on in the first century about 613, all that stuff, saying, listen, there are two things that are really important. The two, and they're anchored in the wall. Deuteronomy 6.4, Leviticus 19.18. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. 
You have truly said that he is one and there's no other beside him. And to love him with your heart, with your understanding, with your strength of your neighbor's one self is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Wow. That scribe got it. He's right. The sacrifice, burnt offerings and sacrifices are meaningless if you don't believe the other two. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, isn't, isn't, that, isn't it interesting that, that Jesus responds with, with that kind of language, the kingdom of God? Because remember, the Jews in the first century, that's what they were thinking about. The Davidic king that will come, the Messiah that will come. And we'll institute the kingdom of God on earth. We'll throw off the oppression of the Roman Empire, all that stuff. So Jesus meets him at that point. You and I would respond, probably in the language we use in the 21st century, you know, you're really close to being saved. You're, you're really close to making this decision of salvation. Don't you want to pray the prayer of salvation with me? That's how you and I would respond. But Jesus responds in in the language of first century Judaism that would have been very relevant. Oh, yes, yes. Because the Davidic king is coming, the Messiah is coming. He's going to set up his, God's kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. So you're not far from the kingdom. And it's really, it would be interesting to know what happened to this scribe. I mean, Mark cuts it off. So did they have additional discussion? They go out to coffee at Starbucks and have some more discussion. Did Jesus, you know, we just don't know. Uh, but it was just so fascinating to know what happened to this scribe. In effect, will we see him in heaven? If he was this close, when he saw Jesus, I mean, he was in Jerusalem, so I mean, he would have certainly known and heard what Jesus would have, what happened to Jesus in a couple of days and his resurrection and all that stuff that would happen within just a few days of this discussion. So I don't know. I'm just hoping that we will see him in heaven. He's one of the 9,762 people. <laughs> and after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Do you think that uh, maybe the use of the term kingdom of God, is where Jesus was saying, you, you, almost, you almost recognize me as Messiah? Yes, 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 exactly, exactly. Now Jesus goes on the offensive. Maybe you don't like me to talk that way, but that's really what he's doing here. As Jesus, I'm in verse 35 now. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? If you go to Matthew's account of this, Matthew says, and Jesus asked the Pharisees. So, and he's teaching in the temple, undoubtedly in the, the court of the Gentiles, in that large gathered place, in that massive, massive court outside the temple complex. But anyway, again, Matthew, it's very, he's specifically addressing this to the Pharisees, but Mark just says he's just teaching it broadly. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? All right, now that when you, you say, wait a minute, come out. That, well, it would seem to me that's the right say the thing to say. Because Christ, as you know, is the Greek word for what? Messiah. So how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
Okay, now, you, you know what that means, son of David, means he is in the line, the Davidic line of Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jesus in the Davidic line of David, which means he has the right to claim the Davidic throne. So is, is the Messiah going to be in the genealogical line of David so that he can claim the throne of David and become the completer, fulfiller, and instigator of the Davidic covenant? So is that a legitimate statement? Is that a correct statement? How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Answer, because that's taught in the Old Testament prophecies. Yes, he is the son of David. So in effect, Jesus is saying that's a good answer, but it's not a complete answer. That's not the total picture of who the Messiah is. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, which, by the way, is another one of the many, many dozens, dozens and dozens of passages that confirm, again, these guys are writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, like 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Timothy 3.16 states, all scriptures inspired by God, etc. So it's really marvelous here. Jesus, Jesus said, and David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared... So if the Messiah is the son of David, how come David said this? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. <clears throat> Jesus is quoting here. Jesus is quoting here from Psalm 110. Verse 1, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. This psalm is quoted more than any other psalm. This is what I want to do uh, here, and it's, it's really quite important. When th this is what you're reading here is the English translation of the Greek. But if you took the Greek translation of the Hebrew, this is what you can see. Yahweh says to... My Adonai. Okay? So what you have here are two major titles of God in the Old Testament. But in Psalm 110, verse 1 and verse 2, Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. What does that imply? Two persons. What does that affirm? The Trinitarian nature of God. One essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. So you have Yahweh, one of the great, we saw that just a moment ago. One, remember, Hebrew has no vowels, so it's really the right way to write this is just a consonant, Y-H-W-H. That's weird to do that, so we'll put in the, the the vowels there. Yahweh says to my Adonai. So this is just this is just a profound declaration that Christ is is saying here. He is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Messiah is not only the son of David. He's not only the genealogical, and that's why in Matthew chapter 1, what do you have? You have a genealogy to prove that Jesus has the right to claim David's throne. Luke chapter 4, you have a genealogy to prove that Jesus has the right to claim David's throne. And so the idea that Jesus is the son of David is an axiom of Jewish theology. But what is not an axiom of Jewish theology even today among Reformed Jews particularly, is, well, now, wait a minute. And they don't interpret Psalm, they interpret Psalm 110 in a weird way. But the point of Psalm 110 is you have persons within the Godhead. Taking you back to Deuteronomy, the Lord is one. One as like in a cluster of grapes. One unit that allows the diversity within that unit. You with me? Am I getting too theologically deep in the weeds? So what the Lord is doing here is really, really quite profound. And just helping everybody understand, because he's really speaking about himself. I'm not only the son of David, I'm the son of God. I'm not only human, I'm divine. I'm the God-man, undiminished deity, perfect humanity, united in one person. That's who I am. David himself calls him Lord, so how's he son? And the great son heard him gladly. But you read in Matthew, the Pharisees were silent. They couldn't answer him. They didn't know how to respond to him because it flew in the face of their theological understanding of Messiah. So this ends, this brings to a completion in Holy Week, all of the discussions Jesus had with the leadership. And as even perhaps with this one, but even as you from all the others, they are so ticked off at him because he has humiliated them in public time and time again. But I really like Matthew does this and Mark does this, ends these discussions that Christ has had with these various leaders with this, where Christ goes on the offensive. Okay, I'm going to ask you guys a question. Messiah, whose son is he? Son of David, good answer, but incomplete. What do you mean incomplete? Let's go to Psalm 110. Yahweh's talking to Adonai, and David wrote this. So how can David call him my Lord? And so it, it just, it explodes all the presuppositions. It explodes all of their expectations. And laying on the table, Messiah is not only the son of David, he's the son of God. You've got to come to terms. So, and, and as I just mentioned, in effect, Jesus is saying, I'm not only the son of David, I'm the son of God. The people enjoyed it. How do you interpret that? Well, it, it could be, and I, I'm not sure I can definitively answer that in a satisfactory way. Some have suggested they're glad and, and delighted that he's embarrassing all their leaders, who they're ticked off about anyway. They don't like a lot of their leaders. Uh, but it could be, I think this is probably even better understanding of it. They're responding, they're responding in in faith to who Jesus is. There, there is and we don't know the great throng. We don't know how many people are we talking about here. John, excuse me, Mark uses a word that the ESV translation uh, translates as throng, which 
I can't remember last time I heard somebody use the wrong <laughs> sentence. I don't. I can't remember. I don't think it's a word most people use anymore. But you usually think of a not of a massive crowd, but you think of a somewhat of a loud, somewhat unruly group of people. They're agitated or worked up or excited, uh, uh, and, and, and that's how he describes them. So they're hearing it gladly, and that's the, and they hear it gladly. They like what they're hearing. That's maybe what he's saying. And there's a degree of faith there, a degree of understanding there, and, and, and so that's, that's kind of good. All right. Now, the, the Lord, take, as, as he always does, he takes this, all that's been happening, and we've studied really probably what, the last three weeks, including this one. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the Pharisees. You could translate that, watch out for the scribes who like to walk. Remember, the scribes are Pharisees, like a subset within Pharisees, who like to walk around in long robes and greetings in marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues <clears throat> and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive greater condemnation. Whoa. Uh, Jesus isn't being very sensitive to these leaders. Jesus isn't being very compassionate toward these leaders. Jesus isn't saying very nice things about these leaders. Because they are the leaders. And although he doesn't use the word here, if you go to Matthew, Matthew's account of this is a whole chapter. And Jesus uses two words. Woe, hypocrites. Woe to you, hypocrites. And the things that he mentions here, and Mark has it, remember Mark's a docudrama. Quick, bang, see, short. So it's very short. What's a whole chapter in Matthew is, is a couple of verses in Mark. And so all Jesus is doing is, this is what your leaders are really like. They're masterful hypocrites. They have their long prayer robes. They have little, little tassels at the end of them. They like to be greeted. Here's Rabbi such and such, Rabbi such and such, Rabbi such and such. Hi, Rabbi, how you doing? And they love to take the best seats in the synagogue. And they place the honor at the fifth. The honor at the feasts would be everyone that's just to the right of the host. They love to be in the honor place of the feasts. But you know what they really do? They exploit the poor. They exploit the vulnerable. They hurt the people who most need their help and compassion. So he says they devour wheat at widows' houses. That's a, that's a metaphor. I mean, they don't go out and eat. <laughs> but, you know, it's, they exploit. So, well, okay, what would that mean? Well, the synagogue needs to build a new addition. And we need you, as a sign of your love and devotion for God, to build it for us. I'm using a ridiculous example because I don't think that's probably. But it's that kind of, in the name of God, you need to give us your money. In the name of God, you need, you, you need to support what we're doing. And that's exploitation. That's oppression. That's using your religious office for personal gain. 
but using the 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 religious language to manipulate and control people to do something that you want doesn't even care what God wants. And what does Jesus say? They will receive greater condemnation. Condemnation is a word of judgment. Their greed and their hypocrisy marks them for judgment. And so here's the Messiah, son of David, the son of God, leveling a theological observation and the judicial condemnation on these people. These are their leaders with whom he's just had lots of dialogue. And then in contrast, in contrast to them is the widow whom they exploit. And he sat down opposite the treasury. Now, um, uh, I'm not going to draw this in the board because I, I don't draw very well. I don't draw buildings very well. It looks like a box. There's lots of details that you can't figure out. So I'm just going to explain to you. You walked into the temple complex, which is a huge open space and courts of the Gentiles and all that stuff. Then you would enter in to the first section in what they call the court of the women. Women are not allowed in the in, in the holy of holies, the holy of place. And so, in the court of the women, along along the 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 it would be the east. Uh, no, it would be the north side of the temple. On the north side of that wall were a series of thirteen trumpet-shaped trumpet-shaped collection uh, uh, vehicles. You, you want to buy trumpet-shaped. It's wide at the top and it gets narrow. Maybe a, a cone or thing you put water in it gets funnel. It's a, like a funnel-shaped type thing. Okay, so this is really an interesting development in Judaism. So people would get, get in, and this is what they would give their free will offerings. This isn't necessarily their tithes free will offering, but they drop it in. And as you drop it in, these trumpet-shaped um, uh, cones or, or uh, you know, kind of such things, as that can, you're going to hear that. It's going to rattle down. And so what's the text say? And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. So Jesus is on the south side of this building, sitting and facing north, and all these, these 13 hannisters, and Jesus is watching people giving. Man, that, to me, that's an intimidating kind of situation or scenario. But here's the thing. This is very crowded. It's very noisy. There are lots of people because people are coming in. There's lots of activity, and they're dropping their money. Okay? Many rich people put in large sums. And that means it would have been, you would have known that. And so, you know, uh, Fred would go in and drop a lot in. Boy, say, hey, Fred's rich. Look at what he is getting. What a man. Blessed by God. Praise the Lord for him. That's what this is supposed to say. Then verse 42, and a poor widow came up and put two copper coins, small copper coins, which make a penny. If you ever go to Jerusalem uh, and there's just little shops and vendors everywhere, they'll show you these little, they call them the widow's mite. It's about the size, uh, about the size of this fingernail. 
very tiny, very small, made out of carbon powder. Now those two drop in, you're probably gonna hear them. But that's not what giving's all about. It's not to get noticed by people. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter five. And he called his disciples to him and said, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. But they contributed out of their abundance. She has, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. It's extraordinary. Talk about sacrificial giving. Is the epitome of that. So, in contrast to the scribe who exploit widows, here you have a widow that Jesus is observing and he's sitting in the court of the women watching people put in their offering. Here's this widow. Two little tiny, do you ever hear people speak of the widow's might? That's an offense to her. She didn't put in a mite, she put in two mites. Yeah. Give her credit for putting in two. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's an extraordinary contrast. And that's exactly what Mark is doing here. An extraordinary contrast between the spiritual leadership and the widows, they are, the widows they presumably are exploiting. Which one is pleasing to the Lord? The son of David, the son of God. Well, obviously. And so it's, it, the contrast is clear. The application for you and me is simply, it doesn't matter how much it matters the spirit with which you give it. This woman, woman regarded this as an act of worship and devotion to her God. And uh, I'm assuming that we should understand this literally as Christ is saying it. She gave out of her poverty. It's like when we studied this goes back, we, we covered this in, in uh, our study in the book of Acts, but you might remember the Thessalonian believers the, the Apostle Paul will use them as the model for the, for the ancient world, uh, for the first century world. Give out, give out, not of your abundance. These people, they are oppressed, they're under tremendous persecution, and they're still giving. And Paul says, there's a good example of what I'm talking about in stewards. He does this in 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, two of the really important chapters in the Bible on stewardship. And so for, that, for us, it, it, it's really getting at why we give, not so much the amount we give. And I, I want to be careful what I mean by that. But it's, it's, you see this as a worshipful response to God has given you everything. Because the other major premise that's really driven home in the Old Testament is God owns everything he has. He stewarded some of it to you. What are you going to do with what he has stewarded to you? All right, now we're going to um, uh, transition now to chapter 13, which is Mark's account of the Olivet Discourse. Now the Olivet Discourse, the fullest account of this is in Matthew 24 and 25, where Jesus is teaching as he's responding to his, his disciples, questions and observations. So, I mean, we're really switching gears here now. Most understand this to be on Wednesday. 
possibly Thursday, but most understand this to be Wednesday of Holy Week. And it doesn't really matter what day it is. I'm just giving you an idea there because we're charting our way through, through Holy Week. And he came out of the temple. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. All right, now let me, I think you know this, but let me just briefly explain it to you if you don't. Temple, the temple sits on a mount, part called Temple Mount. It's part of, there are, there are a series of, of mountain ranges that go up. There actually is one here, one in the center, and there's one to the east. This one on the east is the Mount of Olives, which becomes Mount Scopus. The one in the center is, it's called by a variety of things, but it culminates in, uh, in Mount Moriah, which is where Abraham offered Isaac and so on. And the other one over here is the Mount where Judas will commit suicide. He hangs himself. All three of those mounts play a role to one degree or another. So what Jesus has done is he's leaving Temple Mount. Mount Moriah is a movement north of Temple Mount. He leaves Temple Mount. There's a bridge at that time that connected the temple to um, the Mount of Olives. Or you could just walk down the Kidron Valley and then walk up the Mount of Olives. We don't know which route they're taking. But they're on. They're east of the Temple Mount. And I don't, some of you have been to Israel, but if you stand on the Mount of Olives, look across the temple. And now, of course, you know, the rocks there and all that stuff. But no, no, it is just an incredible sight. You, I, I've been there many times in my life, and every time I've been there, it, the sun has been shining. I've never <laughs> been in Jerusalem it's raining. I've been other parts in the Middle East where it's raining, but it's been really wonderful. And it's just so, such a spectacular sight. So that same, they're looking at those buildings, and of course, the prominent building in AD 33, which is when this occurs, the prominent building is the temple that Herod had built. And it was incredible. And Herod extended it to 39 acres. It was an incredible complex, gorgeous, beautiful buildings. The sun, just we don't know what time of the day it is, but the sun would just be cascading off those buildings and reflecting all the gold. It's beautiful. And this Jesus, look at that. Isn't that fantastic? And then he takes a pen and puts it in the bubble. You see these great buildings? There will be none left here, one stone upon another. They will be thrown down. Wow! <laughs> you talk about a contrast. These guys are exulting in the gorgeous building, temple particularly. And Jesus said, I'm telling you, I'm not one stone from you. The Lord is referring to what happens under General Titus in, 80, in August of AD 70 when Rome destroys the temple, crushing the Jewish revolt that started in AD 67, will culminate in AD 74 at Masada, which you've all heard of those stories, great stories. But this is when they attacked Jerusalem. And Titus had laid siege to Jerusalem. He built siege mounds all around. And no Roman, no conqueror in the whole history had ever done that. They always attacked from the north. Because to the to the east and to the south are very deep, deep valleys. I mean, nobody's going to attack a city from these deep valleys. But Titus did. He built siege walls all around the city. And what you see today are the remnants of the siege wall. And then he said, soldiers who are in the city, don't set anything on fire. And the soldiers saw the gold and the silver in the temple, and they set it on fire. 
and they started ripping those stones. And if you ever go to Jerusalem, you want to make sure your guide takes you to the west side of Temple Mount, where they did the archaeology on this many decades ago, but they preserved those piles of stone. It's an enormous pot higher than this room of these stones that the temple the soldiers had thrown off the temple. That's what Jesus said. What Jesus said he was fulfilled. And the evidence of what he said was going to happen is there in Jerusalem today. You can see it. So Jesus is saying, and Jesus uttered these words in 33 AD. Only he knew that in 70 AD this would be fulfilled. But if you do your math, that's not that long. And so this, I mean, this would have been, this would have been an unimaginable thing for them to think about. So they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, opposite the temple. And Peter and James and John and Andrew. Remember, Peter and Andrew are brothers. James and John are brothers. So these four have been thinking about what Jesus said as they were walking up to the Mount of Olives. And they start to think, he's saying more then we think he's talking about really important end time stuff. Because the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, that had happened in 586 BC with Nebuchadnezzar. This is now AD 33. They're relatively secure under Roman oppression, but they're relatively secure. And so they're saying, wait a minute, he is saying something here that we got to talk to him about. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So what Christ is saying coincides with, dovetails with, and they are correct in this, what the Old Testament prophets had said. And they're thinking, I mean, we got to probe this with Jesus. Jesus, when is this going to happen? And what are the signs of these things? And so Jesus answers the question. And he does go way beyond AD 70. And he starts answering the questions. And this is the only time, and again, it's Matthew chapter 24, it's parallel. The only time where Jesus talks in detail about the second advent. And all that surrounds the second heaven. He's going to use day of the Lord language. So if you want to know how Jesus answers these questions, you got to come back next week. Okay? All right. I love to end class like this when everybody's hanging on the answer to a question. All right. So uh, I hope if you have an opportunity, and obviously you don't have to do this, and it is hard. If you have an opportunity, just, just read a, a, a big chunk of, of Mark 13, which again parallels Matthew 24 and 25. But uh, if you have time, I'll just give you a little bit because it's a lot of important. But remember, we've talked about this before. Jesus uses day of the Lord language here. And that's really helpful when you realize that. What he's doing is fine. Okay, I'm going to break. I'm going to have to get out of here. Thank you, Father, for this day and uh, opportunity we have to study as brothers in Christ the Word of God. I trust this has been a blessing to everyone as we've looked at these extraordinary dialogues between Jesus and his spiritual leadership. And that extremely important revelatory 
statement by Jesus. He uses Psalm 110 to show that Messiah is not only the son of David, Messiah is the son of God. He is the, he is the Adonai. Uh, it allows for those, the persons within the nature of the goddess Trinity. It's an incredibly important statement. And Lord, I just thank you that we have the privilege and the honor to study the Word of God together. Help us to apply it to our lives. Help the, you, Holy Spirit, to not only enable us to understand, but enable us to internalize and, and allow the Word to transform us into the image of Christ, which is the goal. So, Lord, I commit these men to you. Be with them as they go about the rest of their day and this week. Help them to be the salt and light you call them to be in representing Christ, we pray. Amen.